Welcome to Keeping It Marian. I'm Father Thaddeus. And I'm Father Timothy. We are two Marian priests, and together we join Mary in keeping the Word of God and the events of our daily lives, pondering them in our hearts. Today, we're keeping it Marian by taking one more step in this letter of Jude. I failed in the attempt to actually get through verse 4 last time, so let's pick up there. Why don't you read that verse, Tim? Verse 4. For there have been some intruders who long ago were designated for this condemnation, godless persons who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness, and who deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So we went from generally pretty positive statements, mercy, peace, love, to some pretty negative statements, which I think gets to what Jude was saying. He was very eager to write about the common salvation, about the beautiful things that we received in and through Jesus Christ and in through the church. But now he, as it were, turns towards the negative, to those things that we need to be on guard about, that we need to keep safe. So I know a few things I might want to start with, but anything that jumps out at you first, Tim? Well, we're going to get there, but uh, you know what really jumps out at me is that uh, part where he says, who long ago were designated for this <laughs> condemnation. You know, getting yes. into, you know, God's providence, getting into all kinds of things. But it's, yes, like I said, we'll talk about it more. But it's like, wait, God is making these people, you know, do these you know, things. And, and uh, you know, so, yeah, there can be all kinds of uh, pitfalls and, and sure. better ways to understand this than than others. So. Yeah. Well, let, let's go there. Let's okay. Just, let, let's go for the, the hard stuff because I think this this stuff is important because sometimes these kind of questions are in like the background and people yep. don't really ask because it's complicated stuff. So let's just use some of the big words and kind of bring it down to earth. You know, we talk about predestination. Yep. And the church does believe in predestination. That's right. But we don't believe in double predestination. So uh, the Presbyterians believe in double predestination that some from all eternity are destined by God for heaven some for hell, and that's just his choice. And pretty much kind of independent of how much you try or you don't try, you're already in either of the categories. So at the end of the day, things are kind of rigged, as it were. Yeah. Now, I'm sure they would nuance it a lot more, but that's kind of the common, you know, understanding, which understandably gets people afraid because if that's true, then basically it's saying no matter how holy a life you live or how much you repent, at the end of the day, if you're just one of the predestined to go to hell, that well, that's where you go. That's it. We don't believe that. We believe that everybody that God has created is destined for heaven. That is his intention. Now, some people can go against that intention and can go to hell, but that's not what God desires. God doesn't destine anybody to go to hell. And I remember, in fact, one of the Dominican professors when I was at Dominican House of Studies in D.C. said, the irony is that uh, if people were destined for hell, they'd be happy there. Because mm. if you're destined for that place, then your actual goal, what you're made for is that. So if you reach your goal, then ironically, you'd be happy because that's what you're made for. But that's the whole point. You're not made for hell. You're made for heaven, which is why then you're suffering if you're in hell, because that's not your natural habitat. That's not what God intended for you, hence the torture and, and the pain of those who are there. So uh, Jude hints here about God's foreknowledge. Yes. So does God know ahead of time those who are going to heaven, those who are going to hell? Yes. 
But St. Thomas, uh, in his theology, points out just because God foreknows doesn't mean that it causes something to happen. He does give us real free will. We really do have a choice to accept or reject his grace. Um, but that doesn't mean that then just because God knows, you know, he determines what we're ultimately going to choose. So we have a real role to play, which is why the church and Jude is being so emphatic here about right. warning us because we can make a decision here. Yeah, And to kind of stick on this point a little bit too, the, how would you go ahead and, and properly contextualize verses that we do find in Scripture? I'm thinking of uh, the Exodus, for instance, when it says explicitly that God hardens the heart uh -huh. of Pharaoh. It's like, well, wait a second, you know, right. like he, he just did it. You know, he, you know, the Pharaoh didn't say, I want this, you know. So how would you explain or tease that out so that we would have a better, fuller understanding of these types of episodes? So this is where I wish we had those options like phone a friend, you know, call up Dr. Scott Hahn or, or Dr. Bergsma down the street and be like, okay, let, let's get them to explain the Hebrew. But from what I understand, because uh, my expertise is dogmatic theology, not the Bible, but from my understanding of the Hebrew that I've studied is that Hebrew can be a somewhat poor language in describing things. Okay. So in English, uh, we would describe it differently. Whereas in Hebrew, they don't necessarily have a different way of expressing that, you know, God permitted his heart to be hardened and God caused his mm. heart to be hardened. And, and part of this kind of poverty of expression is found in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus says... You know, unless you hate your father and mother, you mm. cannot be my disciple. Sure. Which, you know, if you just take that at its blunt value in English, you're like, <laughs> oh my, oh my. <laughs> Jesus is saying, I have to hate my parents. That's right. But they didn't have comparative words in Aramaic or Hebrew. Yeah. They didn't have. So holy, 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 mm -hmm. for instance, uh, they didn't have, you are the holiest. So the way to say holiest in Hebrew is you just say it three times. Sure. And if you want to say holier than, you say it two times. So there's ways where you have to understand what the Hebrew meant in Hebrew. Because if you take just a literal translation in English, it sounds scandalous to us. And this is what the church means when it talks about the literal sense of Scripture. Uh, today we talk about like literalistic interpretations, which means... Uh, you know, getting to questions like, well, did God really create the world in six days or how many days or how much time? And the point being is that literal isn't about just literalistic. Like, well, Jesus says you have to hate your parents. So that's it. You must hate your parents. No, no, no. Like literal means what did Jesus mean when he said those words? What, what was in his mind? What, yeah. what does that mean to those who actually heard it? And that's where they say, no, Jesus is saying you have to love me more than your parents. Like I'm the Lord. So I'm the most important person in your life and everything else follows after that. And the same way for uh, what you're expressing, we have to understand, okay, with Pharaoh, what is that expressing? God permitted Pharaoh's heart because ultimately uh, God's permissive will is still part of his will. That's right. And he does permit us to sin. That is part of his will. And he can bring good out of that. Uh, but part of God's will includes that Pharaoh can allow his heart to be hardened, even in the face of what God has done. And we see that with the Pharisees too. They see Jesus working miracles, yeah, and that they still close their hearts. God doesn't force faith on them. Because yeah, it, it, that brings you know the image of, you know for instance, a parent trying to correct a child. You know, I'm thinking of a very young child, one you know toddler age or something like that. And the parent does their best, 
to say, no, you don't want to do that. You know, it's going, you know, say touch the, the classic, touch the hot stove. You know, perhaps on a toddler, but, you know, uh, maybe five-year-old or whatever. And they correct that child five, six, 20 times. Don't go near the hot stove. But <laughs> eventually that parent might see some sort of wisdom in saying, well, they're not going to listen right. to me. I'm just going to let them do, right. you know, and, and it's not for obviously for, for, for the point of them getting burnt, but right. so that they can learn themselves. Yes. You know, does the parent have the power? Well, yeah, the parent could strap that child to the wall yes. and they could do nothing. And then, so in a sense, they're prevented from harming themselves, but that child isn't able to be free. Right. That child isn't able to, you know, learn consequences, learn these types of things. And so that's an important kind of, you yep. know, reference, I think, when we can ask the questions, of, well, why does God allow these things to happen? Mm-hmm. You know, so that's, yeah. Yeah, no, it, free will is a tricky thing yeah. uh, to mention kind of modern things. The, the movie The Giver mm. is probably perhaps one of the best explanations about free will and evil out there. And ironically, it doesn't mention God at all, but... It really delves well, it jives well with Christian faith because if you want to eliminate all evil, then you also must eliminate free will and especially love, which is really for me like the center of the movie when right. I forget the character's name, but he says to his younger sister, I love you. Right. And the parents, you know, precision of language, you know, because love has to be eliminated as something voluntary and free if you also you want to eliminate all that's evil. That's right. And part of the whole story is him seeing color again and seeing all these things yes where did that go well that's right if you want to get rid of problems you also have to get rid of all that's beautiful as well that's right uh so it's a very good uh way of understanding yeah the, the whole point of that that story and if anyone was not seen it we highly right. recommend it but and jonas is the name of the character yes um but yeah that there are all these good things but with them there's there's consequences right. it's kind of a trade-off you know that People, again, are like, well, if God was all good and all powerful, then why didn't he just make us to be able to do only good things? It's like because he wanted us to be able to share in his love, and robots can't love. Right. You know, of course, in this day and age where we're talking about artificial and, you know, AI or artificial intelligence, um, you know, these things can mimic, Mm -hmm. you know, because they're programmed to mimic. Correct. But they only you're going to do what they're programmed to do. And so even though it might really fool us, you know, as the technology gets better and better um, and and more enhanced, um, at the end of the day, it's not a free entity in that sense, the the way that God created us to be. So he wasn't interested that machinery work well. You know, he was interested in creating beings that could share and the love that the Holy Trinity has shared in for all eternity, which is, you know, an amazing thing. And it also, you know, to, to bring it back to, well, why again would, you know, the Lord uh, allow these things or why would there, you know, in his providence, um, and are we sure that he's not making people do bad things? Um, you know, a, a verse came to mind from um, Paul's first letter to Timothy, mm-hmm. Uh, which I just read the first couple of verses here, um, which is just, you know, as I read it, you know, it's like, man, this is so good for our times just to read yeah. in general. 
But he says, first of all, then I ask that supplications, prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be offered for everyone, for kings, and for all in authority, that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all devotion and dignity. And this is you know, where the crux comes here, where he says, This is good and pleasing to God our Savior, who wills everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is God the Father's will. This is his desire. Um, that we know that Jesus came to, to die for, for all the world. Now, doesn't mean that all the world will receive that or be saved by that saving hand, so to speak, but it is offered to everyone. Right. You know, and th- this again, you know, going back to, you know, last episode where we we're talking about the deposit of faith. Mm-hmm. Like this is part of the deposit of faith. Like we need to read things in their proper context. And one of the 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 ways in which you know the church um, implores us to read scripture is in its completeness. Right. You know that we can. We talked about cafeteria Catholics in last episode, but well, we can't be cafeteria anything right. really. We have to look at all of the things going on in a given situation. That's why even when you hear that a politician said such and such. Our first like impulse should be like, well, can I see what he said in context? Right. Can I see the greater like, well, who was he speaking to? Right. What time of day was it? You know, all these types of things are important. They're not uh, inconsequential, and so we can yeah. fail to do that in so many ways. Yeah, and that's a whole topic to its own, which is a good <laughs> one because I think of you know Satan in the desert tempting Jesus using the very words of scripture, but out of context, Yes, uh, which is the whole irony, of course. He's using God's very word out of context to draw an incorrect conclusion, which is where another reason that we're Catholic is we read all of scripture. Something that Scott Hahn brought out in one of his books was, you know, as a Protestant, you think that, of course, Protestants preach much more on the Bible. And he said, I never preached on Zephaniah at his Sunday uh, sermons because as a Protestant, that just wasn't what he thought of choosing. He says, as a Catholic, of course, that comes up because we read from every book of the Bible. Yeah, and that's why one of the reasons I chose Jude because you know who reads the letter of Jude? That's right. <laughs> um, it's not a very popular letter, and yet this is the inspired word of God. Now, in the commentary to kind of conclude this idea of them being, you know, kind of destined, designated for this condemnation, the author brings out something very helpful that. Uh, long ago, he refers to the witness of Scripture, not that God pre-planned this long ago that they're going to fall into sin and therefore be condemned, but rather uh, Jude sees, this is from the commentary, Jude sees the condemnation of these itinerant teachers etched in the Scriptures that were written long before. So the point here about it having happened long ago refers to the Scriptures giving witness that these kind of teachers are condemned, the way that they teach and the content of what they're teaching. And his point with that is it's nothing new. You know, it's nothing that should catch us off guard, that if we are attentive to Scripture, then we're safe. And that's sometimes people get afraid today of, you know, false teachers or people who bring in other doctrines into our deposit of the faith. They want to where do we go? Well, Scriptures are the inspired, inerrant Word of God. Now, it's always understood through the church, through the authentic magisterium of the church. But if we're faithful to this, then we'll be able to see 
what is condemned from long ago. It's not going to be terribly difficult or, right. or surprising what is true teaching or what is false. So I can jump into another part of this. I don't know if there's yeah. something else. Let's do that. Okay. So the Greek word here behind, uh, in my translation, for admission has been secretly been gained by some who long ago were designated for this condemnation can be translated in other ways. So like uh, they're intruders who have infiltrated or stolen in among you. The idea here is do you have itinerant Christian preachers, kind of like priests. Uh, for instance, I do parish missions. Mm -hmm. I've gone around the country and preached at various parishes, and I have to present a letter of good standing to, to show uh, who I am. And the point here is you have these itinerant preachers going from one place to the next, and they're stirring up the local Christian communities with what? With false teaching. So I bring up letters of good standing or other things because even today we see this concern to make mm -hmm. sure you know the quality of the kind of people who go around saying that they can teach the faith. Uh, I think about James in his letter, chapter 3, and he, he warns explicitly, not many of you should want to be teachers because he says being a teacher is no small thing. We think about yeah. you know, teaching at a high school or, or middle school and just a kind of a job among other jobs. But teaching the Christian faith is, is no small thing. And there, in the Navarre commentary, they quote John Paul II in his letter about catechesis, I think in 1979, very early in his pontificate. And he says, whoever teaches must be the mouthpiece of Christ. For Christ alone, as Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, is our teacher. He is our one true teacher. And so whoever teaches is, is meant to be united to him and teach in union with him. It's not about what do I think and what do I opine about this. It's about me as it were setting Thaddeus aside and allowing Jesus to speak and to teach to others, which requires self-denial. It requires a lot of moral attitudes on my part, not just saying, oh, I read a book and I, I know information that I want to hand on, which is what Jew then hints at, that the kind of people these teachers are, you know, they're ungodly, they're godless persons who give into license, you know, so he's pointing to problems with their morality, the kind of person they are, because the kind of person we are then affects the way we believe, which is what we hinted at kind of last time, that it's easy for us to take those parts of the faith we like more, you know, mm -hmm. that are easier for us to latch on to and forget or not pay attention to those things that really challenge us and, and, and call us to conversion. So we have here another triplet. You know, again, we're all the different threes here in this letter. So these people secretly gain admission. Then, so what are the triplets? So first, they are godless persons. You know, they are people who are ungodly. Now, the paradox, of course, is these are people who profess to be Christians, and yet Jude describes them as ungodly. And it, it makes me think of St. John Paul II when he came to the U.S. in the 90s. He coined the term practical atheism. Mm. And he was referring to Christians and Catholics, especially in the West and the United States, because you know, in Europe, they kind of look at us. I lived in Europe for some years, and you know, the U.S. claims to be very Christian, and we know a lot of people go to church, and their criticism of us is, sure, they may have much less people who go to church on Sundays. Uh, but they point to us and say, okay, you go to church, but you live as if uh, the rest of the week as if God didn't exist. Yeah. You know, if you look at statistics about divorce, 
about abortion, about other things in the U.S. And unfortunately, Catholics are just as bad or even worse than the national average of people who have no faith or don't associate with faith. And that's what JP2 would call practical atheism. Mm. That sure, you can profess the creed on Sunday. You can say that you're Christian. You can receive communion. But do you live that in your daily life? Because if that's the extent of it, then the paradox is we may say we believe in God, but ultimately we are godless persons, persons who don't live in his presence. And, and Jude gets at this soon about the angels who left God's presence. You know, how much of our lives do we truly live in his presence? Not just literally do we live in front of the tabernacle, right? but through prayer, through a memory of God. Uh, through remaining in the mercy, peace, and love that Jude wishes to be multiplied in us. I don't know if you want to add your two cents or not before I jump along here. No, let's continue forward. Oh, yeah. So these are people, godless people. They don't have reverence towards God. They disregard the truth and the way that uh, the way of life that God has revealed. So practically, they don't live in obedience to his commands. So that's the first part of the triplet. They're godless Second, they pervert the grace of God into licentiousness, that is, license for immorality, which the charge here behind the the words, we call it a euphemism, so it's a a nice way of hinting at something else that's maybe less uh, desirable to mention point blank, which is sexual immorality, which, oh boy, (laughs) talk about a a topic today, uh, especially in the West after the 60s and 70s and you know, wanting to break loose from all the sexual mores, uh, the church is probably most attacked in regard to her sexual morality because many people feel it is, you know, very oppressive, very ancient, and needs to be updated, and, yeah. you know, it's not bad. And this is where, you know, we could have multiple episodes on St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body that by far the church doesn't think that sexuality is bad or evil. And in fact, precisely because it is so good, it has to be protected. It has to be preserved for a proper place because misused in improper areas, it can create a lot of harm. And what Jude here is getting at is, so these are people who gain secret admission. So they are not going through the proper channels of authority and they're godless. They don't have respect in their own lives for the way of life that God indicates for them. So they lack obedience in their lives. And how does that show up? Through licentiousness. The idea here, you know, Paul talks about this. We're saved by grace, not by works, which is true. We're saved by God's pure gift, his pure mercy. But Paul and Peter and all the New Testament repeat this refrain of, but the freedom we have is not license. And I remember my dad bringing up, he was very big on words, the difference between the two that Freedom, St. John Paul II would say, is the capacity to choose what is authentically good. Yeah. It's not license, which means I just get to do whatever I want. That's right. And it's good that you point that out because as we were talking about at the beginning, talking about free will, so many people think, well, I have free will. So whatever (laughs) I choose to do is is good, right? I mean, otherwise, why give it to me? Right. But you just answered it. It's because we have the choice. doesn't mean that all choices are going to lead to our fulfillment and happiness or or that they're objectively good. There's bad choices. And we know this. Mm-hmm. We see people doing bad things. Now, whether they're actually bad or good might be another question, actually. 
But when we see somebody doing something that we don't like, we usually just attribute that to that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Stop doing that thing, you know. So this concept of good and bad, you know, has really been twisted, you know, and this is kind of getting to, again, the heart. There's a twisting Mm -hmm. of the truth that's happening, not only in Jude's time, but even in our time. Yes. And, you know, one of the figures that comes in in, uh, into my mind was back in the almost 500 years ago again, um, the Thomas Hobbes. Mm -hmm. And he basically, like, you know, completely recontextualizes what we mean by good and evil. And when you look at what he's doing, you can actually, I don't even think he saw how insidious, you know, his redefinition was. But he basically says, well, what we really mean when we're talking about good are things that give pleasure. And what we really mean when we talk about evil Mm -hmm. are things that cause suffering. Now, the irony here is that in our present time, you know, again, jumping now 500 years, suffering in the secular person's mind and even by these practical atheists, those who go to church on Sunday, they they say they believe, and perhaps they do, but their actions speak another thing. And in fact, their belief in this Hobbesian understanding mm-hmm. of, of uh, good and evil um, actually betrays them because they run from suffering instead of at least run away from it instead of running to the cross with it right right which is the christian you know not only message but the christian mission mm-hmm. you know that just as uh, christ transformed suffering into well you know something that gives us grace now ultimately his suffering, you know, on the on the cross to our salvation. Mm-hmm. But it's not something that he's like, oh, this is just for me. He promises to his followers, like, you will suffer too. Mm-hmm. This is just the way it is right. in this fallen world. There's no getting around it. And, you know, again, like, I don't even know if Hobbes realized what he was doing, but he was literally doing the antithesis mm-hmm. of that. In a sense, his... Uh, his his whole teaching was anti-Christian, you know, anti-Christ, you know, and and so this this is something that we have to really recognize within our own lives. Um, that how do we handle suffering? Mm-hmm. You know, do we wrestle like Jude is wrestling here? He's contending for the faith, yeah. or or do we just go ahead and and just kind of cave whenever suffering comes mm-hmm. and and or interpret poorly and say, oh, the Lord must not be with me, right. you know, so. Right. I mean, we could go on and on on that, you know, but I think that's that's really uh, important to to bring into this. It is because I, good and evil. What you're getting at is what's called like subjectively pleasurable or good for me, which is ultimately what in the U.S. we often kind of mean or secular people mean and what's good. Like, yeah, what I feel is right and what I feel does me good. The paradox being, of course, that a doctor may have to tell a patient, listen, you need chemotherapy if you want to stay alive, Sure, which doesn't feel good in the least, but they both know and understand in order to attain the goal of continuing alive, they have to undergo a lot of suffering. But somehow that analogy breaks down once it gets to God because people think, well, if God loves me, then he doesn't want me to suffer, to which I would respond, yes, and yet God loves his own son more than he loves any of us, yeah. and yet he has allowed his own son to be crucified. 
which really is kind of the, the core here that grace and freedom are perfected. We're at the cross. The man who's most free is Jesus Christ crucified. Why? Because he's not there by accident. He's not there because other people brought him there. He makes clear in the Gospel of John uh, that when they ask him, who are, you know, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am he, they fall to the ground. And he makes clear, I lay down my life. No one's taking this from me. This isn't because I, you know, somehow yeah. lost my power and they captured me in a moment of weakness, kind of yeah. like in superhero movies, you know, they, sure. they're debilitated and they, they, they don't have the normal powers. No, Jesus can fully save himself and he freely entrusts himself to the hands of the Father and to the hands of those who are going to kill him. And so this is the paradox. Christian freedom leads us to the cross. It doesn't lead us to just willy-nilly. Well, now I just get to do kind of whatever <laughs> I want. And we know this, again, to keep going on this, because I think this is a very important topic, is we know this with sports too. Sure. Like imagine sports, like a football game or a soccer game where the ref says, you know what? Let's just do away with the rules. Have at it. Do <laughs> what you want. <laughs> everybody just do their thing. Okay. Nobody would watch that. Nobody would play that. Because how do you know if they scored a goal? Sure. If they won? Yeah. Uh, if they injured some? There's no way. Yeah. There's no rules. That yeah. There's no structure. Right. And no enjoyment. That's right. But we all know we, yep. the refs are there and they, they are an essential part of the game. And in fact, we know all too well it can often change the course of a game depending on how they call the game. Yeah. Uh, but we also think of how the athletes have to train. It doesn't come easy. They have to train hard. Sure. But if you look at the Olympics, I love watching the ice skating. You know, these people train hard for hours and hours. And then you see two minutes and it looks as if they're just elegantly doing yeah. their thing, you know, as if it's no, no big deal. But that that's grace in a natural sense. Like it flow is the psychological word today and in, in psychology that you get to a point where you can do something difficult that for anybody else would be impossible. For you, you reach a point where it comes with such grace and ease, you actually enjoy it. It's not even painful or difficult anymore. And that's what being a saint is like. That's what being a Christian is like. You got hours and hours of practice. No one else is going to see all the sacrifices, all the dedication, the, the contending from the last episode, from the previous verse, uh, where we put a lot of energy, we suffer, we die. But like a violinist, once you learn good enough, yeah, you don't need the, the music score in front of you. You can start doing your own yeah. because you've got it down. It, it's down in your heart. Uh, but the easy way out is to say, well, gracious means freedom, so you just do what you want. No, <laughs> you don't go to a symphony to listen to the orchestra do whatever they want. You, you go to an, a symphony to, uh, or an orchestra to listen to the symphony where they, they do what's written in a beautiful way, uh, interpreting it in grace and beauty to, according to what they've learned. So the key thing here to, to wrap up this particular part is to pervert the grace of God into licentiousness is to confuse the meaning of grace. God has set us free, but he set us free to love. You mentioned uh, about laying down our life for our friends in the last episode. That's freedom, offering of myself, loving like Christ loves. That's what grace leads me to. It leads me to the cross. It doesn't help me escape from the cross. That's right. So the last part of this verse, and we're going to keep to our pattern here of <laughs> one verse per episode, but uh, the ultimate fruit of this is they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Ouch. I mean, <laughs> we, we went to the very opposite end yeah. here. Um, but And in a sense that <clears throat> we've kind of already touched on that, right? You know, with 
moving towards pleasure and running away from pain. We deny like Peter. For sure. Yeah. Or, or or anybody, you know, for that matter. I mean, how many even saints, you know, yeah. and they're like that that's that was the the, the struggle that they had to go through. Yeah. Um but they deny what Christ did for us. Mm-hmm. And they deny the fact that he asks us to follow him. You know, uh, and, and um, you know, and also, you know, it now comes to mind, you know, a verse, and I don't have the, the paragraph number in mind, but it comes from Faustina's diary where Jesus uh, basically shows Faustina a whole bunch of different souls. And some are on the cross, yes. some are, you know, walking with their their crosses firmly in their hands, and other people are like dragging it behind them. You know, and he basically says, you know, like the, all these people are are various Christians who uh, are embracing their cross either really well or hardly at all, or you know, mm-hmm. some in the middle. You know, mm-hmm. um, and he points out too that to the extent that we follow him uh, in fidelity in this this uh, act of being crucified in a very real sense um, by the world, by our loved ones, um, that in their faithfulness to doing as he did for us, that they will share in his glory. And those ones that struggle, you know, hope is not lost. Right. He just says that their glory is going to be a little less. And at the end of the day, those people are going to be like, Gee, I wish I had the better glory. I mean, they're going to be so happy that they're going to be there, but that's right. not the point. The point is, you know, um, to 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 really trust, mm-hmm. you know, to trust that that he is going to bring something good out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, that even, in a sense, you get this this, you know, from this uh, greeting, and and now the occasion and theme in which Jude wishes to to write uh, to his, his his audience here, there's a kind of excitement that he has. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this struggle, he's not like, oh, dear, what's going on? He's almost like, I'm so excited to write this. I mean, it's not quite like that, right? You know, but he's, he's like, this is the thing. This is what I'm here for. Right. This is what you're also here for, to do for the right. people that come after you and so on and so forth. Um, so this is to be, you know, something to to one be expected, but to two to to not do it drudgingly, but right. to do it with with joy, yeah. um, and, and excitement and love and all those things that he he started the letter with, you know, with mercy, right? So yeah, and that gets into part of the the difference between like big T tradition. We talk about like the tradition mm-hmm. of the church that we have the mass, for instance. It's not literally in the Bible, but is part of the tradition. And there's the living tradition, meaning the very process of tradition, which in Latin simply means handing down the faith. In the U.S., there's a lot of kind of complaint that earlier generations around Vatican II and after really failed to hand on the faith. Mm. Thanks be to God, we got a lot of beautiful initiatives now by different institutes, our own community, to try and hand on the faith. Because, yes, the Pope and the bishops are the primary ones to hold on the faith and to pass it on. Uh, but every person, especially parents, like it's not the pastor's job to hand on the faith to children, your children. It's your own job. That's one of the primary responsibilities that married people assume in the sacrament of marriage is you're the primary educators in the faith. And I mention that because a large reason for my vocation is how my dad handed on the faith, not just because he sat me down and said, here, read this, yeah. but every Sunday praying the rosary, 
uh, all the ways that the faith was simply lived, not necessarily preached about. That's right. Just it showed up in daily life. Yeah. And all of us are called to that living tradition, that living handing on of faith from one person to the next in its entirety. Again, not just what I like or what's important to me, but the wholeness of it. Now, this denial of Jesus is above all by the way of life they are living that then shows up in their teaching because what we teach reflects the kind of person that we are, what mm-hmm. what we accept and what we believe. And in the world today, it's very common uh, for people to accept kind of the authority of governments, and yet they don't accept the authority of religious, you know, of, of the Pope or, or others, and they want to kind of come up with their own set of beliefs. And that gets the idea that ultimately faith is something we accept or we reject. And this denial is something we need to be careful of because we may say in words like, well, no, 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 no. You know, and I mentioned Peter when you were saying because Peter denied the Lord yeah. three times, and he was the first when Jesus told him, you know, you will deny me three times. And Peter, no, 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 listen, Lord, I'll follow you till you die. A few hours later, you know, he gets just the question, "Hey, I, I've seen you with him. Don't you know this guy?" No, no, no. I, you know. It, so often we have a certain price, as it were, and we have we have a limit for following Jesus. I think one of my better moments in my own spiritual life when I was going through it terrible difficulty i met with father jim and uh i was crying over some pain and and i at the end of it i just had this moment of grace where i recognized but no matter what i want to follow jesus period i won't don't want to leave him i don't want to deny him i don't even if i have to suffer a million things and i've never been able to say that before because there's always a limit like jesus yes i love you and then a huge cross would kind of come my way, and then you're just kind of like, oh, wait, um, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> I love you, Lord, but this is a bit much. And it, it came to the point of saying, no, freedom is when I can say, Lord, I don't want to deny you at all, not just in my words, but in my actions and my obedience and my fidelity to you in all the small ways yeah. uh, of our daily lives. So to wrap up, I want to uh, bring this back also to our lady. Now this is keeping it Marian. I had meant to make mention of her in the last episode, but I, I forgot. And I can't help but think of her at Pentecost. You know, there are certain things in the gospels that could have only come from her speaking to the evangelist Luke, for instance. But I think of her because when we talk about the deposit of faith, we're not just talking about ideas. Like at the very end here, deny our Lord and master Jesus Christ. It's about a person. And Our Lady is the first. She protected Jesus, like Joseph as well, from Herod. They escaped. But her love and her zeal is not just for articles or written things. It's for the living person of Jesus Christ and for his members, the church. She's the first who thinks about, who meditates on these things in her heart. She kept this common salvation. And I can only imagine her, her influence at Pentecost, sharing in those nine days waiting from the ascension to Pentecost with the apostles, all that she had witnessed of her son, all that she knew about this common salvation and filling them in in ways that they probably didn't understand. And I can't help but think about the why the rosary is so important in that way. It is, as it were, going to her and asking her, Mary, what is this salvation that we've all received that she too received? Because she also received a salvation she's immaculate but that is a grace and how like her to contend john paul ii brings out when at the it says that she stood at the cross 
it's not just kind of like, oh, you know, she was standing in his kind of passive attitude, you know. Yeah. That's actively contending. Imagine a mother, you know, all the mothers listening to us, watching your own son be crucified and being there, witnessing that compared to Peter who denied and ran away. She contended with her own heart above all to stand firm, to be with her son. Whew, that's courage. That's what Jude is, is talking about, contending for the faith, being there to receive what is delivered once for all because she was there when Jesus saved us once for all at Calvary. And it's that kind of fidelity that we need in keeping the word of God and pondering all that happens in our daily lives, but never letting what happens in our daily lives determine our faith. Because so often what happens in my experience is daily events start to consume us and what we believe becomes more determined by how I feel, what I think, what's going on in the world. We got to update things. And certainly the faith is like a seed that has to grow today. But faith isn't determined by the world today. Faith is determined by the once and for all in Jesus Christ. And Our Lady represents that living memory of the church. She remembers that once for all, but she remembers it today. And the rosary is a way to bring that, all these mysteries, to today. She's an example of someone who lives in grace, you know, who didn't fall into this license of doing whatever what is the line that we always repeat from her, let it be done to me according to your word, according to what you want, uh, which sounds very pious, but if we think about it, yeah. it's not easy yeah. you know, to really say, my life is in your hands. I don't determine it. I'm not the last one. You know, When we say Jesus is Lord in the U.S., we don't like kings. You know, that's the very reason we started our country. We don't want a king. And yet Jesus has total authority. He's saying, you are Lord. You call the shots. You make the decisions. My life is in your hands. And I, I want to conclude with a connection here in the Catechism and Our Lady as Virgin because the faith is intimately connected with also our sexual purity. And I'm not saying this to be puritanical or just emphasize, oh, we just got to stick to you know church teaching. <laughs> Because people can be very much like, oh, here we go. You know, they want to emphasize mortal sins. And no, there's in the Catechism, paragraph 2518, this is in uh, the part about purification of the heart, the ninth commandment. It reads this The sixth beatitude proclaims, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart refers to those who have attuned their intellects and wills to the demands of God's holiness, chiefly in three areas. Charity, chastity, or sexual rectitude, and love of truth and orthodoxy of faith. There is a connection between purity of heart, of body, and of faith. Then there's a quote here from St. Augustine. The faithful must believe the articles of the creed, so that by believing they may obey a God, by obeying may live well, by living well may purify their hearts, and with pure hearts may understand what they believe. Without pure hearts, this is me now, we don't understand what we believe. And without understanding, we often stop believing because we say this just doesn't make sense because yeah. we want to make sense of things. But we talk about Lady is the virgin, not only most pure, but the virgin who kept that, that faith pure because it's very connected. Our sexuality, our purity of heart, of body very much affects the purity of our faith. 
that's where people say, well, the church should stay out of the bedroom. It's like that is, well, the Lord is Lord of life. He is the Lord of everything. And what I do in private does determine what then in public I may profess in terms of my belief in Christ and in the church as well. And her virginity is very important in this sense, not just bodily virginity, but the strength of her faith in conceiving Jesus. And then, like I said, she shows up at the last. When all the apostles flee, she's still there. Her faith is firm. She contends to the very end. So for myself and for all those listening or watching, may she help us to maintain our faith, to contend for it. And may she also help us to have mercy, peace, and love multiplied and be in abundance in our lives and our hearts. That's it for me. I don't know if you have any two cents at the end there, Tim. No, I think that's a good place to to wrap it up on this episode. Okay. Well, I'm Father Thaddeus. I'm Father Timothy. We are two Marian priests, and we're keeping it Marian. Join us next time for our next episode. St. Stanislaus. Pray for us. Blessed George. Pray for us. Immaculata Virginis Maria Conceptio. Sit nobis salus et protexio. Pray for us as we pray for you. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to watch it as well. You can find the video version of Keeping It Marian exclusively on DivineMercyPlus.org, the streaming site for all things Marian. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit DivineMercyPlus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's DivineMercyPlus.org. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you and God bless you. Visit shopmercy.org to order your copy of my new book, Shining in Spotless Splendor, Consecration to the Immaculate Conception. Again, this book is available on shopmercy.org. God bless you.